0: Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the Woodstock Whispers podcast. My name is George Zach. I am a Woodstocker from the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And what we're trying to accomplish in this podcast is capture some of the oral history of the first hundred years of Camp Woodstock. That's right. We are going to be celebrating the century birthday of Camp Woodstock in 2022. And so we've been trying to capture some of the wonderful stories of Camp Woodstock in its first hundred years in this podcast. If you're interested in getting some more information on the planning of that 100th birthday, or if you'd like to go, or if you want to get involved in some of this uh, put-together of oral history and, and cataloging of pictures, all sorts of activities occurring around the 100th, I'll have some links in the show notes that you can click on and you can get some additional information on that. One of the stories that is clearly transcended time at Woodstock is the story of Woodstock Charlie. And there's a whole host of additional other legends at Woodstock, Oscar... Uh, In the lake is one that comes to mind. Uh, Aquidamog, we certainly covered that a little bit in a previous episode. Uh, But the story of Woodstock Charlie, well, gosh, I certainly recall the first time I heard that as a a Sioux camper in, in the 70s. So we're going to have a podcast where we cover a bunch of the different legends. But one of the things we wanted to do was capture the Woodstock Charlie story as told by a guy that's been at Camp Woodstock for over three decades, the former executive director, Mike Sherman. So what I did is I went back, Mike told this story on a Facebook Live feed uh, in early 2020, went ahead and captured that, uh, that audio, and we're going to share it here. The audio is a little rough because it was a Facebook Live feed, but it is certainly uh, listenable, uh, and we're going to use this as a precursor episode to our, our Legends podcast, where we'll cover some of those other legends at Woodstock. So without further ado, I'm going to let us drop right into listening to this story um, by Mike. And if you've never heard Mike tell a story, you're in for a real treat because he's a master storyteller and the story of Woodstock Charlie.
1: So Mike has been involved with camp for over 30 years. And if you've never heard Mike Sherman tell a story, you are in for a special evening. So gather around. We'll give you a few minutes, and Mike will introduce the story, as some people are still continuing to join us on Facebook. But gather around, and grab your popcorn, your hot cocoa, if you have some s'mores, you can uh, start making them, and we'll start off with Mike Sherman. Mike? Thank you, Tony. Well, before I tell the story of Woodstock Charlie, I've been asked to give a little background information about how that story came to be. It's an old story. And it was more or less made up by Thomas Tryon, who was the Stephen King, before Stephen King, writing books such as this one, The Night of the Moon book. This is a book about Camp Woodstock, written in 1987, the year I first came to camp. I met Tom Tryon. I was in my office, I'd only been on the job for a very short time. And my secretary, Therese, came running into my office and she said, Mike, you won't believe it. Tom Tryon is here and he wants to speak to you. I said to Therese, who is Tom Tryon? She said, you know the movie star. And I said, well, there's this guy that used to write all these scary books. Is that the guy? She said, no, he's a movie star. Well, it turned out he was both. He came into my office, and he sat down across from me, and he said, I bet you're wondering why I'm here. And I said, yes, I am. And he said, I was a camper at Camp Woodstock in 1936 and 37. And while I was there, I had the time of my life, and I'm writing a book about it. He said, it's a scary book, but it's about Camp Woodstock and every character in it. I met at camp, only the names changed. So I said, well, how can I help you? He said, do you have any old pictures of camp, of people, what the camp looked like? And I looked at him kind of funny, and he said, I have writer's block. I can't finish the book, and if I see a picture of someone or a place it might get my imagination going. The publisher is all over me. I've got to get this book done this weekend. So I said well I just found a big box and in that box were a bunch of old pictures of camp. Let's go through them. So one by one for the next hour I would pull out a picture that I just found myself from the 1930s and laid in front of it and he would look at it and he would tell me stories about these various people and I could tell he was like in some kind of a reverie as he was looking at these pictures. He came to one picture of a man named Phil Smith. I knew his son who was on the board at the time and he pointed to that picture. Phil was a young man at the time, he was the waterfront director. On the picture he was on the dock shaving with one of those old-fashioned straight razors. Tom looked at that picture and he tapped it and he says to me, and there's Phil Smith. And his eyes stopped to water and he says, my God, how we love that man. The next morning I called Phil Smith to tell him that story. Well, we got done with all the pictures in the box He looked at the last one, he thanked me, and he tapped the box, and he said, Mike, I just want you to know, these were the best years of my life when I was a camper at Camp Woodstock in 1936 and 1937. Well, he finished the book, and about six months after that, he died of stomach cancer. But before he died, and before the book was actually published, he mailed me a copy. And when I opened it up, it's written me a little note on the frontispiece page in the book. And it said, To Mike, at long last, dot, 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 Tom. The camp had meant something very strong to that man. And I kind of look at that as my beginning at Camp Woodstock. Well, he told me the story of Woodstock Charlie, some of which is in the book Different Name and Different People. And much of what I'm telling you is what he told me. He was a very imaginative person, as you sound soon here. The legend of Woodstock Charlie began long before there was a camp called Woodstock for a young, awkward camper named Charlie. It began 300 years ago with a chance meeting of a Nipmunk princess and the son of a Wabapawasa chief. These two tribes were at war in the middle of the lake was the dividing line between the two tribes. One foggy full moon night years and years ago, two Indian canoes glided silently across the lake, unaware of the other's presence. In one was the Nipmuc princess, whose name has been lost from memory. And the other was the Wabakwasa chief's son, his name also lost for him. When they got close enough to see each other, the princess threw down her paddle and looked in fear into the eyes of the Wabakwasa warrior. He looked back at her just as astonished, and then finally he spoke, and he said, do not be afraid, for if I could speak your language, I would tell you how beautiful you know. And he turned his canoe and headed back to his shore when the princess spoke, I do speak your language. And the ancient ones tell us that once our tribes were one and they parted the way. The next night, and the night after that, and night after night after night, they would meet. And though they never touched, they fell in love, planned to marry, knowing that would bury the hatchet, and peace would come once again as the two tribes became one. But it was not to be. As they went back to their shores and their villages. Their fathers, the chiefs, roared with anger, rose up and told them, never again, never shall you meet this person upon the penalty of death. And they took their canoes. devastated the two lovers slipped into the water that night and swam to the middle of the lake. But they planned to swim across the lake and elope to, to a far, far away country and leave the warrior behind. But the princess did not have the strength to the swim. She began to sink. The warrior frantically swam toward her, but he was too late. She sank into the water. He dove into the water and he brought up her lifeless body. Holding it on his shoulder, he screamed out to both shores, See what you have done? This great loss to me and to you? And he shook his fist at him, grasped the princess, and sank with her to the bottom of the lake. The tribes, hearing the yelling, Had come to each shore and saw an astonishing sight. From the Nipmunk side, a moonbow arced across the lake to a large boulder on the other side. And from the far side of the lake, the ghost of the warrior began to walk on the arc of the moonbow. And the princess. From the great oak at Woodstock's current waterfront, began to walk to the princess. Their arms were outreached, but as they reached the top of the ark, just ready to touch each other, they dissipated into the night, along with the moon glow and the thunder and the lightning that had occurred. A large bolt of lightning crashed into the water, causing waves on either shore. And the villagers of both tribes wondered, what does this mean? And then in the stillness, the voice of Minito, the Great Spirit, spoke, reverberating through the night. See what you have done, see what you have done to those you love, and now they are lost. You who were one will now be nothing together, for I curse both your tribes. No children will ever be born to you again, and you will disappear like snow melting into the earth never to appear again and this curse will be upon you and upon this land until some great act of love compensates for your hatred for you are not capable of such an act the years passed the tribe vanished the Nipmucs the the Wabacrosses were no more and although no one was there to see it on many a full moon night a moon girl would arc from the great oak on the Nipmuc shore to the boulder on the Wabacrosses shore and an Indian princess and an Indian warrior would walk to meet each other over the moonwalk. and just before they would touch, they would dissipate. There would be thunder, there would be lightning, then there would be stillness, the anger of Manito remained to curse the land. Time went on, and then In 1922, Camp Woodstock came to that land, and in 1936 came a camper named Charlie. He was tall, he was awkward, he was strange. He made few friends, except for two counselors, Frank and Roger, who took Charlie under their wings, but they were bullies then, as there are today, and they made life difficult for Charlie. They would hide his dinner forks, steal his possessions, put them in other cabinets. They would call him cool names, play all kinds of tricks on him. But Charlie would write brave letters home, telling his parents how much he loved them, how much he missed them, and that he had made two great friends and Roger and Frank, who were counselors. Charlie would spend his time in the craft line, and became the best landward maker in all of camp. He would go to the waterfront where Roger, the canoeing instructor, would teach him. He became the best canoeist and everyone but the boys began to slowly respect this tall, awkward, gangling boy. But then, then came the annual softball game at Camp Jewel. Charlie was not an athlete. A batter came up for Camp Jewel. They needed one run. They had a runner on third and there were two outs. The batter hit a lazy fly to right field. Charlie saw it coming and froze in fear. The ball hit his net, fell to the ground. The runner scored and Camp Jewel had their victory. Knowing what was in store for him, Charlie threw his mitt down and ran crying through the crowd straight to the waterfront. He jumped in a canoe, paddled furiously to the center of the lake, where suddenly a dark cloud appeared out of nowhere. Thunder roared, lightning flashed, striking the water near Charlie. And just as Frank... When Roger reached the waterfront, a bolt hit the canoe directly, exploding Charlie and the canoe into smithereens. But it sank to the bottom of the lake. Camp closed that summer with the death of Charlie and did not open until the following summer of nineteen. 19- but things were different. Strange things happened. An indistinct wailing could be heard at night. Footfalls could be heard in cabins. No one was there. Campers reported a dark specter running through the woods at night. Forks would be missing from dinner plates. Possessions would be stolen and found in other cabins. And Charlie's bullies would wake up in the morning with dark, charred fingerprints on their foreheads. Fear gripped the camp, and then it happened. One of Charlie's bullies was hiding behind a tree. Where the Sloan house once stood someone or something tapped him on the shoulder. The bully turned slowly, and behind me was Charlie, or what was left of Charlie. His clothes were tattered and burned. His face was mostly gone, except for a skull. His fingernails had grown into long hooks. The bully ran screaming into the night, and the whole camp came together from the emergency bell in the old dining hall. And as the counselors tried to calm everyone, an indistinct wailing was heard, a sobbing sound coming from the old ice house that stood near where the BB gun range is today. Frank and Roger looked at one another, got up, and began to walk to the sound. They had heard that sobbing sound before. They approached the ice house. Roger took a lantern. He opened the door. He stepped inside. As he moved the lantern light around the inside of the ice house, he saw nothing. And then something warm and wet splashed against his shoulder. He lifted the lantern up, and in the rafters above him was Charlie. Or what was left of Charlie? Sonny. He lowered the lantern in fear, left the ice house, began to ran back, to run back to the dining hall. But Frank grabbed him. Roger screamed, It's Charlie! But they both stood their ground. And while the whole camp watched, from the old dining hall, Charlie, too tall to come through the door, bent down inside the ice house, stood up, reached out his arms, and began to walk toward the two councillors. They reached out their two hands and walked to Charlie. And they embraced. They could feel Charlie's body change. And just before he dissipated forever, they saw him smile. And although no one saw it, that night, in the full moon, a moonbow art from the great oak tree, the Woodstock waterfront, all the way to the boulder, the far side of the lake. An Indian grave, a Wabba son of a chief, from 300 years ago. His ghost walked the ark from the boulder. From the great oak, a beautiful Indian princess walked toward them with their arms outstretched. Just before they met, they paused, took one more step, and embraced. And they and the disappeared forever into the night. For that one great act of kindness had ended the curse. Charlie, the ghost, and the moon god are no more. They are gone. But great acts of kindness live on. And that is the story of Woodstock Charlie. And I hope to see all of you in a material way at the 100. Thank you for listening.